Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Monument Bible Church in the building and with us online. As I reflect on the lyrics of that song, the paradoxes in that song are uh, many. They're quite extraordinary if we take time to truly reflect on them. Let me see if I can get my controller back on. Thanks, Dale. <laughs> Well, no, it's just going back and forth and back and forth. Is it broken? It might be broken. I'm going. It seems to be going backwards. Boy, Dale, you really did a number on it. <laughs> All right. Well, ah, okay, maybe it'll work. We'll see. I'm going to take, we'll take it one slide at a time this morning. <laughs> but as I reflect on the lyrics uh, of that song, it's truly extraordinary to consider that for Mary, the child that she delivered would soon be her deliverer. That when she kissed Jesus's face, she was in many ways kissing the very face of God, and when she rocked him in her arms as he slept, she was holding the great I am. What magnificent thoughts, thoughts that draw us towards the powerful truths, truths that we find in our memory verse for this month, the month of December. Let's say it together this morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. And as we bask in the birth and the early life narrative of Jesus, there are ingredients to his life that we often miss, overlook, sometimes fail to reflect on or rehearse enough to appreciate their true significance. So in the spirit of Christmas today, I'm going to need one of our high school students to help me this morning. Um, cookies are a large part of this season. So do I have a high schooler that would come up here and, and help me, please? I need one. All right, I have two over here. Okay, Brighton, come. That's fine. Anything he does up here, I can pay him back for at home, so that's all right. All right. Well, thanks for coming up here, Brighton. So in the spirit of Christmas, I have a cookie for you. Now, here, you hold this. Well, don't hold that. Here. You might be four. Are you fool from communion? If you are, I can get another student to come up here. Are you sure? What, that cracker wasn't enough for you? And the, okay. There. This is a chocolate chip Cookie. Now, don't do anything. Don't, don't eat it yet. I know. I know your habits. Uh, <laughs> now, hold the cookie up so everyone can see this beautiful cookie that you have. Well, that's good. Like, kind of, kind of aim it at them. So, in this cookie, uh, there's some chocolate morsels, chocolate chips, some M&Ms. Um, and we can see and savor the chocolate morsels in this cookie uh, much like with Jesus' birth, there's events from his life. There's his birth, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. But there's more to just a cookie than these chocolate morsels 
Um, you can put it down now, it's good. And, and, and the M&Ms. We can also see the hardened dough of the cookie. Perhaps these would represent specific events from Jesus' life. The calling of the twelve disciples, the Sermon on the Mount, the Transfiguration, the woman at the well. But there is more to a chocolate chip cookie than just chocolate chunks and dough. There's other ingredients. Many ingredients that we cannot see or perhaps even taste. But without them, no doubt, the cookie would not be the same. So the parts of Jesus' narrative that we're exploring today, they might be viewed as those ingredients that we often forget. Now, Brighton, uh, you're going to take a, a bite of this cookie. All right. You can, uh, you can take a bite. Okay. You chew with your mouth closed. Good. <laughs> All right. So what, what do you taste in the cookie? What do you taste? Oh, 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 he has gum in his mouth, too. Boy, that's lovely. Well, my goodness, that, that's really going to affect what you taste. Oh you, oh, you want to put your gum in there. Okay, there you go. Good. So, what? No, you hold that. <laughs> what? Just hold it. <laughs> what, uh, what, what do you taste? Oh, here. Well, I'll take the cookie, then. <laughs> what do you taste? Chocolate, yeah. Anything else? Three, oh, you got three M&Ms in one bite. That's a good cookie. Well, this, this goes pretty well with any cookie. Wait, you don't have... Oh, he is lactose intolerant. All right, well, maybe, maybe I, I really brought the wrong student up here. Just a, little, just a little sip. Just a little sip to help wash that cookie down. How was that? All right, here. Go sit down. You did good. Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully you don't get sick. So we're exploring parts of Jesus' birth narrative today, or early life narrative, that are often overlooked, yet are very marvelously significant to the overall life and ministry that he had here on earth. These ingredients, much like maybe the eggs and the flour of what goes into a cookie, they reveal something that's going on below the surface, something that we often cannot see regarding God's presence with Jesus the family that Jesus was born into in his early life, um, and, and the reality that as an infant, Jesus couldn't do anything to help himself. These are significant, identity-defining moments for Jesus where we find our Lord in the same position of, of every infant. He's weak, he's vulnerable, he's in need of caring human hands. And without the events that we're going to examine today, Jesus could not have been the Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament. If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, Savior of his people, Savior of the world, then there were specific measures that were needed to be taken, laws to be followed that would ensure that he could live as one who could completely fulfill the law. Becoming the unblemished sacrifice who could be offered once for all to take away sin and conquer death. And as we move into the scriptures this morning, we're keenly tuned into the mysterious reality related to our supernatural faith. God with us, God in us, and God through us. The Father, in communion with his people, 
preserving the Messiah so that he could fulfill and uphold all that God had purposed for him. God doesn't need us, but in love, he chooses to use us in significant ways to bring about his plans for life and human flourishing here on earth. And in this morning's words, we're going to hear the distant chimes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ringing together with bells from Moses and Joshua's narrative as well. Through history, God has worked using humanity to protect, preserve, and even proclaim of his glory. A glory that he's revealed most fully in the person of Jesus. And so in our text this morning, we wish to unwrap two specific questions related to Jesus and relevant for us now. The first is this, how did God work through humanity to ensure that Jesus would be confirmed as a member of the Jewish community and consecrated for God's purposes? And then second, why does it matter still today? Before we read, we're in Luke chapter 2. If you want to take your Bibles or devices and turn there, Luke chapter 2. Today we're looking at verses 20 to 24. We're going to pick up where the shepherds left off and go right through verse 24. Luke 2, 20 to 24. The third gospel in the New Testament. And before we read, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word, for its power, for its living nature. It is active always working as your spirit uses it in our lives. We gather as a people hungry this morning, participating in worship together, knowing that you are here moving and working in our midst. There are pieces, ingredients of Jesus's early life, Father, that often we overlook or pass by that have so much meaning. We wish to uncover those things today, Lord, and see how you might purpose to use them in our lives as we go here, that we might grow in a greater love for you and one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 2, verses 20 to 24, we're picking up where the shepherds left off. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when Jesus was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The ritual of circumcision for the Jewish people began before they even had a common identity as a people. The first account of circumcision is found in Genesis chapter 17. It comes at the culmination of Abram's failure. Abram had not trusted God. Rather, he and Sarah had devised a plan to take advantage of their Egyptian servant Hagar and use her to produce offspring for themselves. Abram and Sarah 
through that act had fallen into the very behavior that God had condemned before the flood of Noah's day. God had promised to give them a son. He was going to give. And rather than trust in God's promise, Abram and Sarai take matters into their own hands, taking their servant and using her to take a son for themselves. Abram was 86 when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. Thirteen years later, as the Bible communicates in Genesis 16 to 17, God visits Abraham to restore him, rename him, and reaffirm his covenant with him. But this time, God's covenant will require that Abram and his descendants literally put some skin in the game. Pun intended. It is Genesis 17, 9 to 14, where God commands as a part of his covenant that every male at the age of eight days old must be circumcised. The command would be established in Jewish law, and once again it would be reiterated in the book of Leviticus, where it says on the eighth day of the flesh, his foreskin must be circumcised. The sign of God's covenant visible in the flesh of his people. And isn't it ironic that the very part that Abraham had used to oppress and violate Hagar would now have a piece cut away? Ironically, it would also be the part that God would use to preserve the line of the Messiah. And in an act of even greater irony, this cutting off through circumcision would be an act that would ultimately bring people near to God. According to one biblical scholar, he said, quote, Circumcision is the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, a reminder of both divine judgment and mercy, and a means by which anyone can take on the sign of God's covenant with his people, and enter into the family, end quote. Jesus was eight, and to be considered a true Jewish male in his day, he needed to be circumcised in accordance with the law. His first shedding of blood would come from the knife of his father. At the time, the head of the household most often performed the circumcision, and for Jesus, here in Luke 2, the removal of his foreskin would be foreshadowing of a later time where once again, at the hands of men, he would shed his blood. His first shedding of blood marks his identity as a son of Abraham. His last shedding of blood, the sacrifice as the unblemished lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And through this right, Jesus receives the right to participate in the Jewish community as a son of the covenant. Jesus' circumcision testifies to his humanity, but verse 21 is also swallowed in a hint that reveals his deity. We see this in the second part of verse 21. Here, the divine baby 
is named. But his name comes as given from above. Before Jesus was born, we remember in the narrative, an angel had appeared to Mary. It's in the first chapter of Luke. Listen, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. Jesus' name was revealed by Gabriel, but it comes from God. It is a name that carries with it great purpose and intention. Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. His purpose firmly attached to the name that he would carry. He is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the promise and the revelation of God's salvation. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 hangs over this text, this entire narrative. But when the appropriate time had come, God sent out his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we may be adopted as sons with full rights. In these early events of Jesus' life, God is at work as he orchestrates his plan of salvation through his son, born of a woman, born under the law, the one who would redeem us, making it possible for you and for me to be given the right to be called a daughter or a son of God. But Jesus' circumcision is not the only ingredient that we often overlook in his early life narrative. As Mary and Joseph's firstborn son, more needed to happen in order for Jesus to truly fulfill the law. Rehearse the account with me again. Look at verse 22, 23, and 24. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy or set apart to the Lord. To offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there is much that is happening in verses 22 to 24. We will unpack them in the following sequence. Mary's purification, the sacrifice that she offered, and then we'll come back Jesus' dedication. But the big idea that we need to grab hold of in these verses that's hanging over everything is that everything is happening in exact accordance with both God's intended purposes and the law. There is nothing out of place. Isn't that amazing? You think about the situation that Jesus was born into the turmoil, social, political, governmental, that he was born into. And yet in his narrative account, what we find is everything is happening exactly as it should be. Verses 21 and 22 are not simultaneous. Jesus is circumcised at eight days, but Mary is not able to offer sacrifice for her purification until 40 days after Jesus' birth. And it may seem another paradox that the birth of our Lord would make his mother ceremonial or ritually, 
unclean. Yet this is exactly the case as the text describes it to us. As one scholar noted, quote, Jesus, who came to reunite persons in fellowship with God, himself now involves his own mother in ritual impurity, end quote, an act that would actually separate her from worship in the Jewish temple. Leviticus chapter 12 gives us insight to all of the events that are happening in this part of Jesus's birth narrative. This is the law, the law that they were following in those days. Tell the Israelites, when a woman produces offspring and bears a male child, she will be unclean seven days. As she is unclean during the days of her menstruation, on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin must be circumcised. Then she will remain 33 days in blood purity. She must not touch anything holy. She must not enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. Jump down to verse 6. When the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she must bring a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering to the entrance of the meeting tent to the priest. If she cannot afford a sheep, then she must take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a sin offering one for a burnt offering, and the priest is to make atonement on her behalf, and she will be clean. The questions are many, and they are significant, and I will tell you from the get-go, they have been the subject of many of volumes of theological work and literature. What was the nature of the sin offering and burnt offering that Mary had to give? Was it a sin for a Jewish woman to give birth to a child? And if not, why did she have to offer a sin offering? Now, the answers to any one of those questions by themselves could be an entire sermon on its own. We're going to keep the answers short and succinct for our time this morning. The burnt offering and the sin offering were both sacrifices of atonement. They were sacrifices that were made to reconcile people unto God. A sin offering may more appropriately at times been understood and referred to by Jewish people as a purification offering. That is because not all impurity is a result of personal moral sin or failure. But all impurity exists due to sin's effect and influence in the world. This because not all sins that needed atoned for were sins of moral failure. Rather, some sins were matters of ritual impurity. For a person to become ritually impure, a sin did not need to be committed. A person could become unclean by participating in any number of day-to-day -day events, even an event such as coming into contact with a dead carcass. Hunters? <laughs> Purification offerings then served to remind the people, and they remind us, that sin's effect in the world disrupts and defiles even life's most common events and activities. 
Activities that God has given for good and for human flourishing. They do not exist free from the stain and the blemish of sin and death's influence in the world. The shedding of blood through the process of childbirth made a woman ceremonially unclean. And for this, atonement needed to be made in the form of a blood sacrifice. So the answer to question two is no. It was not a sin to give birth within the Jewish community. However, giving birth was an act that would bring impurity, making one ritually unclean. We might say, even, that rather than sinning, Mary, through her birth, was participating in a very imperative that God had given to his creation. At the beginning, what was it? Be fruitful and multiply. So if Mary didn't sin in the birth of Jesus, why then did she make a sin offering? And in short, Mary makes a sin offering because she is a faithful follower of Yahweh. And his law was clear that following the birth of a child, both a burnt offering and a sin offering needed to be made for her purification. Mary was faithful to follow the law as it was prescribed. And again, the greater portrait of what is happening here is this reality that behind the scenes, God is at work. God has Jesus born into a family that is faithful, faithful in their love of Yahweh, faithful to follow his law and his commands so that his seed can be perfected and kept safe and free. And he can be one born under the law. So Mary brings her offering. It's the offering of a poor woman. Reflect back on Leviticus chapter 12 verse 8. If she cannot afford a sheep, then she must take two turtle doves or two young pigeons. It's no small detail or ingredient. That Jesus was born into a family that was living in poverty. You see, not only does Jesus lay aside his rights as God to come to earth, impoverishing himself to take on the flesh of a man, but when he comes, he enters not into a family of privilege and prosperity, but rather a family of disadvantage and poverty. Jesus goes on to live a life of poverty. He never owns his own home. He borrows his fishing boats. He sustains his ministry by the support of others. He borrows a colt to ride into Jerusalem. And when he dies, he's placed into a borrowed tomb. As God, we know wealthy beyond measure never knowing for lack, able to supply all of our needs, to give in abundance to whosoever will come, the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. As a man, poor, the man of sorrows, born into hardship, into a life of pain, unpopular with his own people, disrespected by the leaders of his day, despised and rejected by men. 
As God, he's one who's perfectly acquainted with the challenges and struggles of wealth and nobility. He's the king of kings. And as man, he is one perfectly acquainted with the challenges and struggles of poverty as God born of the world into a family with financial insecurity. The family of Jesus provides us with a glimpse of what it looks like to live with faith, hope, joy, and love regardless of our circumstances. Mary comes to make sacrifice for her purification, but she also comes to make a living sacrifice, presenting Jesus, dedicating him as one who would be set apart for God's purposes. And in accordance with the law, Jesus needed to be dedicated. He needed to be set apart. It was a rite a right that was steeped in Jewish tradition that dated all the way back to Passover when the angel of death passed by the homes of Israelites who had preserved the life of their firstborn sons by placing the blood of the lamb above the doorpost of their homes. This event served as an early biblical signal that life and redemption comes through the blood. In the Passover, it's found in Exodus chapter 12. And so Exodus chapter 13 opens with the following words. The Lord spoke to Moses, set apart to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites, whether human or animal, it is mine. God has the right to the first fruits, the firstborn of the community. The dedication of the firstborn would take place at 40 days old. And throughout the Bible, the number 40 carries with it great significance. We can trace this pattern all the way back from the beginning. There were 40 days and 40 nights of rain in the flood. Moses spent 40 days on the mountain communing with God before delivering God's commands to his people. The prophet Elijah fasted for 40 days. When Jesus comes to earth, he goes into the wilderness and he fasts and he prays for 40 days at the initiation of his adult earthly ministry. And after his resurrection, Jesus walks on the earth for 40 days before ascending into heaven. The number 40 in the Bible is often used to alert us to a new chapter of God's divine work. But we also find that 40 days is followed by times of difficulty and unrest, as we know Jesus's life would be filled with. And so here comes Jesus. He is Lord, he is Savior, he is fully God, fully man. And now the paradox and the irony in all of this is that God is being carried in to his own temple by the hands, the very hands of the ones that he created in his own image. It's a beautiful picture. Nurtured, cared for, protected, embraced presented by the very hands of those he came to seek and to save. 
the word became flesh and took up residence among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the only one, the one and only full of grace and truth who came from the father. What a picture. The glory of God coming into his temple to be presented, set apart for God, all in accordance with the law. Being born as one who was under the condemnation of the law. The temple in those days was to be a place that marked where humanity interacted or met with a manifestation of God's physical presence. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus, we know his words, he would completely unsettle and disrupt the temple, leaving no stone or proverbial stone unturned. Eventually, the physical temple would be both crucified, then destroyed. Jesus would resurrect from the dead, and then he would continue to rebuild the temple as his church. Both individually, all who believe are a temple. Individually, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And corporately, as the body of Christ together, the church is a temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. The living God still dwells with us and within us today. And isn't that a wonderful truth? Though we cannot see him, he is as close to us today as he was when he walked the earth. Jesus is now the one who marks the place of meeting between God and his people. And I would say today, if you're here and you've not personally come to know God through the person of Jesus, there's no better time than now than today. And I would invite you even now where you sit, whether you're online or here in the building with us, confess with your mouth. Perhaps even silently that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And today can be the day of your salvation. God used the faithful obedience of Mary and Joseph to ensure that everything happened in exact accordance with God's purposes. Mary and Joseph abided by the law of Moses, which is the law of the Lord. So that Jesus could be born as he was prophesied to be the Messiah. He was a male identifying as Jewish through the rite of circumcision. A firstborn son born under the law and dedicated or set apart for God's intended purposes. Purposes which he fulfilled perfectly and completely. And friends, it still matters today. It matters because in Jesus we see the faithfulness of God. To send his son, our Lord and Savior, into the world to be born of human flesh. To come as one under the law, just as you and I. Jesus came, and when he did, he didn't sit on the sidelines. He was not afraid to get dirty or to become caught up in the difficulty of human life. He entered into it, hurt and all. He and his parents lived in poverty. His mother and his father needed to make sacrifice to atone for their impurity and sin. He was dedicated to the Lord. He faced the worst of what this world has to offer. And he stood faithfully till the end, perfect and without sin. 
his life ultimately becoming the once and for all time sacrifice that was needed to make atonement for sin. Raising from the dead, conquering death, proving once again the trustworthy and faithful nature of God's character. Friends, it matters because Jesus' example is an example for us today. We're called to be present. We're called to step in, to shine, and to have effect in the world that God has planted us in. Today, uh, you may have noticed in your weekly that there is an insert that gives some insight into how the faith community here at Calvary Monument Bible Church has not stayed on the sidelines, but rather has entered in. It's a testimony to how God has worked, to what he has done within our community, through our community, both here and outside in the last year. It's a vignette. It's not everything, but it's significant. And there is much to be thankful for. And every one of you, whether you're in this building or whether you're with us online, every one of you has played a part as God has worked through our community to reach people, to shine, and to have effect in this world he has planted us in. 